Chapter Two, Part Two of Two, of Herndon's Lincoln, by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ralph Kerwin. Thomas Lincoln's widowerhood was brief. He had scarcely mourned the death of his first wife a year until he reappeared in Kentucky at Elizabethtown in search of another. His admiration centered for a second time on Sally Bush, the widow of Daniel Johnston, the jailer of Hardin County, who had died several years before of a disease known as the Cold Plague. The tradition, still kept alive in the Kentucky neighborhood, is that Lincoln had been a suitor for the hand of the lady before his marriage to Nancy Hanks, but that she had rejected him for the hand of the more fortunate Johnston. However that may have been, it is certain that he began his campaign in earnest this time, and after a brief siege won her heart. He made a very short courtship, wrote Clerk of the Court Samuel Haycraft, to me in a letter, December 7, 1866. He came to see her on the first day of December, 1819, and in a straightforward manner told her that they had known each other from childhood. "'Miss Johnston,' said he, "'I have no wife, and you have no husband. I came a-purpose to marry you. I knowed you from a gal, and you knowed me from a boy. I've no time to lose, and if you're willin', let it be done straight off. She replied that she could not marry him right off, as she had some little debts which she wanted to pay first. He replied, Give me a list of them. He got the list and paid them that evening. Next morning I issued the license, and they were married within sixty yards of my house. Lincoln's brother-in-law, Ralph Croom, and his four horses and spacious wagon were again brought into requisition. With commendable generosity he transported the newly married pair and their household effects to their home in Indiana. The new Mrs. Lincoln was accompanied by her three children, John, Sarah, and Matilda. Her social status is fixed by the comparison of a neighbor, who observed that life among the Hankses, the Lincolns, and the Enlows was a long ways below life among the Bushes. In the eyes of her spouse she could not be regarded as a poor widow. She was the owner of a goodly stock of furniture and household goods, bringing with her, among other things, a walnut bureau valued at fifty dollars. What effect the new family, their collection of furniture, cooking utensils, and comfortable bedding must have had on the astonished and motherless pair who from the door of Thomas Lincoln's forlorn cabin watched the well-filled wagon as it came creaking through the woods, can better be imagined than described. Surely Sarah and Abe, as the stores of supplies were rolled in through the doorless doorways, must have believed that a golden future awaited them. The presence and smile of a motherly face in the cheerless cabin radiated sunshine into every neglected corner. 
if the Lincoln Mansion did not in every respect correspond to the representations made by its owner to the new Mrs. Lincoln before marriage, the latter gave no expression of disappointment or even surprise. With true womanly courage and zeal, she set resolutely to work to make right that which seemed wrong. Her husband was made to put a floor in the cabin, as well as to supply doors and windows. The cracks between the logs were plastered up. A clothes press filled the space between the chimney jam and the wall, and the mat of corn husks and leaves on which the children had slept in the corner gave way to the comfortable luxuriance of a feather bed. She washed the two orphans and fitted them out in clothes taken from the stores of her own. The work of renovation in and around the cabin continued until even Thomas Lincoln himself, under the general stimulus of the new wife's presence, caught the inspiration and developed signs of intense activity. The advent of Sarah Bush was certainly a red-letter day for the Lincolns. She was not only industrious and thrifty, but gentle and affectionate. And her newly adopted children, for the first time, perhaps, realized the benign influence of a mother's love. Of young Abe she was especially fond, and we have her testimony that her kindness and care for him were warmly and bountifully returned. Her granddaughter, Harriet Chapman, furnished me in after years with this description of her. My grandmother is a very tall woman, straight as an Indian, of fair complexion, and was, when I first remember her, very handsome, sprightly, talkative, and proud. She wore her hair curled till gray, is kind-hearted and very charitable, and also very industrious. In September 1865, I visited the old lady and spent an entire day with her. She was then living on the farm her stepson had purchased and given her, eight miles south of the town of Charleston in Illinois. She died on the 10th of April, 1869. During my interview with this old lady, I was much and deeply impressed with the sincerity of her affection for her illustrious stepson. She declined to say much in answer to my questions about Nancy Hanks, her predecessor in the Lincoln household, but spoke feelingly about the latter's daughter and son. Describing Mr. Lincoln's last visit to her in February, 1861, she broke into tears and wept bitterly. I did not want Abe to run for president, she sobbed, and I did not want to see him elected. I was afraid that something would happen to him, and when he came down to see me after he was elected president, I still felt, and my heart told me, that something would befall Abe, and that I should never see him again. Abe and his father are in heaven now, I am sure, and I expect soon to go there and meet them. The two sets of children in the Lincoln household, to their credit be it said, lived together in perfect accord. Abe was in his tenth year, and his stepmother, awake to the importance of an education, made a way for him to attend school. To her he seemed full of promise, and although not so quick of comprehension as other boys, yet she believed in encouraging his every effort. 
he had had a few weeks of schooling under Riney and Hazel in Kentucky, but it is hardly probable that he could read. He certainly could not write. As illustrating his moral makeup, I diverge from the chronological order of the narrative long enough to relate an incident which occurred some years later. In the Lincoln family, Matilda Johnston, or Tilda, as her mother called her, was the youngest child. After Abe had reached the estate of manhood, she was still in her teens. It was Abe's habit each morning one fall to leave the house early, his axe on his shoulder, to clear a piece of forest which lay some distance from the home. He frequently carried his dinner with him, and remained all day. Several times the young and frolicsome Tilda sought to accompany him, but was each time restrained by her mother, who firmly forbade a repetition of the attempt. One morning the girl escaped maternal vigilance and slyly followed after the young woodsman, who had gone some distance from the house and was already hidden from view behind the dense growth of trees and underbrush. Following a deer path, he went singing along, little dreaming of the girl in close pursuit. The latter gained on him, and when within a few feet, darted forward and with a cat-like leap landed squarely on his back. With one hand on each shoulder, she planted her knee in the middle of his back, and dexterously brought the powerful frame of the rail-splitter to the ground. It was a trick familiar to every schoolboy. Abe, taken by surprise, was unable at first to turn around or learn who his assailant was. In the fall to the ground, the sharp edge of the axe embedded itself in the young lady's ankle, inflicting a wound from which there came a generous effusion of blood. With sundry pieces of clothing torn from Abe's shirt and the young lady's dress, the flow of blood was stanched, and the wound rudely bound up. The girl's cries having lessened somewhat, her tall companion, looking at her in blank astonishment, knowing what an infraction the whole thing was of her mother's oft-repeated instructions, asked, Dilda, what are you going to tell mother about getting hurt? Tell her I did it with the axe, she sobbed. That'll be the truth, won't it? To which last inquiry, Abe manfully responded, Yes, that's the truth, but it's not all the truth. Tell the whole truth, Tilda, and trust your good mother for the rest. This incident was, many years afterward, related to me by Tilda, who was then the mother of a devoted and interesting family herself. Hazel Dorsey was Abe's first teacher in Indiana. He held forth a mile and a half from the Lincoln farm. The schoolhouse was built of round logs, and was just high enough for a man to stand erect under the loft. The floor was of split logs, or what were called puncheons. The chimney was made of poles and clay, and the windows were made by cutting out parts of two logs, placing pieces of split boards a proper distance apart, and over the aperture those formed, pasting pieces of greased paper to admit light. At school, Abe evinced ability enough to gain him a prominent place in the respect of the teacher and the affection of his fellow scholars. Elements of leadership in him seemed to have manifested themselves already. E. R. Burba, 
in a letter of March 31, 1866, stated, He always appeared to be very quiet during playtime, never was rude, seemed to have a liking for his solitude, was the one chosen in almost every case to adjust difficulties between boys of his age and size, and when appealed to, his decision was an end of the trouble. He was also rather noted for keeping his clothes clean longer than any of the others, and although considered a boy of courage, had few, if any, difficulties. Nathaniel Grigsby, whose brother Aaron afterwards married Abe's sister, Sarah, attended the same school. He certifies to Abe's proficiency and worth in glowing terms. He was always at school early writes Grigsby, in a manuscript of September 12, 1865, and attended to his studies. He was always at the head of his class, and passed us rapidly in his studies. He lost no time at home, and when he was not at work was at his books. He kept up his studies on Sunday, and carried his books with him to work, so that he might read them when he rested from labor. Now and then, the family exchequer running low, it would be found necessary for the young rail-splitter to stop school, and either work with his father on the farm, or render like service for the neighbors. These periods of work continued so often, and continued so long, that all his school days added together would not make a year in the aggregate. When he attended school, his sister Sarah usually accompanied him. Sally was a quick-minded young woman, is the testimony of a schoolmate, Nat Grigsby. She was more industrious than Abe, in my opinion. I can hear her good-humored laugh now. Like her brother, she could greet you kindly and put you at ease. She was really an intelligent woman. Abe's love for books and his determined effort to obtain an education in spite of so many obstacles induced the belief in his father's mind that book-learning was absorbing a greater proportion of his energy and industry than the demands of the farm. The old gentleman had but little faith in the value of books or paper, and hence the frequent drafts he made on the sun to aid in the drudgery of daily toil. On September 8, 1865, Mrs. Thomas Lincoln told me, I induced my husband to permit Abe to read and study at home as well as at school. At first he was not easily reconciled to it, but finally he too seemed willing to encourage him to a certain extent. Abe was a dutiful son to me always, and we took particular care when he was reading not to disturb him, would let him read on and on till he quit of his own accord. Thomas undertook to teach Abe his own trade. He was a carpenter and joiner. But Abe manifested such a striking want of interest that the effort to make a carpenter of him was soon abandoned. Footnote. A little walnut cabinet two feet high and containing two rows of neat drawers, now in the possession of Captain J. W. Wortman, clerk of the United States Court in Evansville, Indiana, is carefully preserved as a specimen of the joint work of Lincoln and his father at this time. Noted by Jesse William Wyke. At Dorsey's school, Abe was ten years old. 
at the next one andrew crawford's he was about fourteen and at swaney's he was in his seventeenth year the last school required a walk of over four miles and on account of the distance his attendance was not only irregular but brief schoolmaster crawford introduced a new feature in his school and we can imagine its effect on his pupils whose training had been limited to the social requirements of the backwoods settlement it was instruction in manners one scholar was required to go outside and re-enter the room as a lady or gentleman would enter a drawing-room or parlor another scholar would receive the first party at the door and escort him or her about the room making polite introductions to each person in the room how the gaunt and clumsy abe went through this performance we shall probably never know if his awkward movements gave rise to any amusement his schoolmates never revealed it the books used at school were webster's spelling book and the american speller all the scholars learned to cipher and afterwards used pike's arithmetic mr lincoln told me in later years that murray's english reader was the best schoolbook ever put into the hands of an american youth i conclude therefore he must have used that also at crawford school abe was credited with the authorship of several literary efforts short dissertations in which he strove to correct some time-honored and wanton sport of the schoolboy while in indiana i met several persons who recalled a commendable and somewhat pretentious protest he wrote against cruelty to animals the wholesome effects of a temperate life and the horrors of war were also subjects which claimed the services of his pen then as they in later years demanded the devoted attention of his mind and heart he was now over six feet high and growing at a tremendous rate for he added two inches more before the close of his seventeenth year thus reaching the limit of his stature he weighed in the region of a hundred and sixty pounds was wiry vigorous and strong his feet and hands were large arms and legs long and in striking contrast with his slender trunk and small head his skin was shriveled and yellow declares one of the girls who attended crawford's school this was miss kate roby who later married alan gentry his shoes when he had any were low he wore buckskin breeches linsey woolsey shirt and a cap made of the skin of a squirrel or coon his breeches were baggy and lacked by several inches meeting the tops of his shoes thereby exposing his shin-bone sharp blue and narrow in one branch of school learning he was a great success that was spelling we are indebted to kate roby a pretty miss of fifteen for an incident which illustrates alike his proficiency in orthography and his natural inclination to help another out of the mire the word defied had been given out by schoolmaster crawford but had been misspelled several times when it came miss roby's turn abe stood on the opposite side of the room related miss roby to me in eighteen sixty five and was watching me i began d e f and then i stopped hesitating whether to proceed with an i or a y 
Looking up, I beheld Abe a grin covering his face and pointing with his index finger to his eye. I took the hint, spelled the word with an I, and it went through all right. There was more or less an attachment between Miss Roby and Abe, although the lady took pains to assure me they were never in love. She described with self-evident pleasure, however, the delightful experience of an evening stroll down to the river with him, where they were wont to sit on the bank and watch the moon as it slowly rose over the neighboring hills. Dangling their youthful feet in the water, they gazed on the pale orb of night, as many a fond pair before them had done, and will continue to do until the end of the world. One evening, when thus engaged, their conversation and thoughts turned on the movement of the planets. I did not suppose that Abe, who had seen so little of the world, would know anything about it, but he proved to my satisfaction that the moon did not go down at all, that it only seemed to, that the earth, revolving from west to east, carried us under, as it were. We do the sinking, he explained, while to us the moon is comparatively still. The moon's sinking is only an illusion. I at once dubbed him a fool, but later developments convinced me that I was the fool, not he. He was well acquainted with the general laws of astronomy and the movements of the heavenly bodies, but where he could have learned so much, or how to put it so plainly, I never could understand. Absalom Roby is authority for the statement that even at that early day, Abe was a patient reader of a Louisville newspaper, which someone at Gentryville kindly furnished him. Among the books he read were the Bible, Aesop's Fables, Robinson Crusoe, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, A History of the United States, and Weems' Life of Washington. A little circumstance attended the reading of the last-named book, which only within recent years found its way into public print. The book was borrowed from a close-fisted neighbor, Josiah Crawford, and one night, while lying on a little shelf near a crack between two logs in the Lincoln cabin during a storm, the covers were damaged by rain. Crawford, not the schoolmaster but Old Blue Nose, as Abe and the others called him, assessed the damages to his book at seventy-five cents, and the unfortunate borrower was required to pull fodder for three days at twenty-five cents a day in settlement of the account. While at school it is doubtful if he was able to own an arithmetic. His stepmother was unable to remember his ever having owned one. She gave me, however, a few leaves from a book made and bound by Abe, in which he had entered, in a large, bold hand, the tables of weights and measures, and the sums to be worked out in illustration of each table. Where the arithmetic was obtained, I could not learn. On one of the pages which the old lady gave me, and just underneath the table which tells how many pints there are in a bushel, the facetious young student had scrawled these four lines of schoolboy doggerel. Abraham Lincoln, his hand and pen. He will be good, but... God knows when. On another page were found in his own hand a few lines which it is also said he composed. Nothing indicates they were borrowed, and I have always, therefore, believed that they were original with him. Although a little irregular in meter, 
the sentiment would, I think, do credit to an older head. Time, what an empty vapor tis, and days how swift they are. Swift as an Indian arrow, fly on like a shooting star. The present moment, just as here, then slides away in haste. That we can never say they're ours, but only say they're past. His penmanship, after some practice, became so regular in form that it excited the admiration of other and younger boys. One of the latter, Joseph C. Richardson, said that Abe Lincoln was the best penman in the neighborhood. At Richardson's request, he made some copies for practice. During my visit to Indiana, I met Richardson, who showed these two lines, which Abe had prepared for him. Good boys who to their books apply will all be great men by and by. To comprehend Mr. Lincoln fully, we must know in substance not only the facts of his origin, but also the manner of his development. It will always be a matter of wonder to the American people, I have no doubt, as it has been to me, that from such restricted and unpromising opportunities in early life, Mr. Lincoln grew into the great man he was. The foundation for his education was laid in Indiana, and in the little town of New Salem in Illinois, and in both places he gave evidence of a nature and characteristics that distinguished him from every associate and surrounding he had. He was not peculiar or eccentric, and yet a shrewd observer would have seen that he was decidedly unique and original. Although imbued with a marked dislike for manual labor, it cannot be truthfully said of him that he was indolent. From a mental standpoint, he was one of the most energetic young men of his day. He dwelt altogether in the land of thought. His deep meditation and abstraction easily induced the belief among his horny-handed companions that he was lazy. In fact, the neighbor, John Romine, makes that charge. He works for me, testified the latter, but was always reading and thinking. I used to get mad at him for it. I say he was awful lazy. He would laugh and talk, crack his jokes and tell stories all the time. Didn't love work half as much as his pay. He said to me one day that his father taught him to work, but he never taught him to love it. Verily, there was but one Abraham Lincoln. His chief delight during the day, if unmolested, was to lie down under the shade of some inviting tree to read or study. At night, lying on his stomach in front of the open fireplace, with a piece of charcoal he would cipher on a broad wooden shovel. When the latter was covered over on both sides, he would take his father's drawing knife, or plane, and shave it off cleanly, ready for a fresh supply of inscriptions the next day. He often moved about the cabin with a piece of chalk, writing and ciphering on boards in the flat sides of hewn logs. When every bare wooden surface had been filled with his letters and ciphers, he would erase them and begin anew. Thus it was always, and the boy whom dull old Thomas Lincoln and rustic John Romine conceived to be lazy was in reality the most tireless worker in all the region around Gentryville. His stepmother told me he devoured everything in the book line within his reach. 
if in his reading he came across anything that pleased his fancy, he entered it down in a copy-book, a sort of repository in which he was wont to store everything worthy of preservation. Frequently, related his stepmother, he had no paper to write his pieces down on. Then he would put them with chalk on a board or plank, sometimes only making a few signs of what he intended to write. When he got paper, he would copy them, always bringing them to me and reading them. He would ask my opinion of what he had read, and often explain things to me in his plain and simple language. How he contrived at the age of fourteen to absorb information is thus told by John Hanks. When Abe and I returned to the house from work, he would go to the cupboard, snatch a piece of cornbread, sit down, take a book, cock his legs up as high as his head, and read. We grubbed, plowed, mowed, and worked together barefooted in the field. Whenever Abe had a chance in the field, while at work or at the house, he would stop and read. He kept the Bible and Aesop's fables always within reach, and read them over and over again. These two volumes furnished him with the many figures of speech and parables, which he used with such happy effect in his later and public utterances. Amid such restricted and unromantic environments, the boy developed into the man. The intellectual fire burned slowly, but with a steady and intense glow. Although denied the requisite training of the schoolroom, he was none the less competent to cope with those who had undergone that discipline. No one had a more retentive memory. If he read or heard a good thing, it never escaped him. His powers of concentration were intense, and in the ability through analysis to strip bare a proposition he was unexcelled. His thoughtful and investigating mind dug down after ideas, and never stopped till bottom facts were reached. With such a mental equipment, the day was destined to come when the world would need the services of his intellect and heart. That he was equal to the great task when the demand came is but another striking proof of the grandeur of his character. End of chapter 2, part 2 of 2 Reading by Ralph Kerwin, Belmont, California